Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Allgate. Uh, my name is David Breer and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Jason Bates. How's it going? I'm good, I'm good. It's been a long time since it, you and I have been on podcast It together. has. It's been months, I think. We're going to get into trouble, haven't we? What have you been up to? Oh, this and that. I've uh, just had a few days off in Rome, so nothing work-related, but uh, that was amazing. And then off to Hong Kong next week, so unpacking the suitcase, then packing the suitcase. Nice. So we need to wrap this up pretty quickly so you can go pack a bag, though. Pretty much. Okie dokie. And joining us today, we have some new guests. So Ryan Pritchard-Edwards, who is the Managing Director of Funding Options. How's it going, Ryan? Very good. Um, Pleasure to be here. Uh, super excited to actually take part in the show. And you're looking super tanned as well, dude. Where you been? Uh, everywhere. Uh, so I was over in Sri Lanka for a couple of weeks over Easter, still kind of holding on to some of that tan for dear life. Uh, and actually a little bit like you. Uh, I was over in Rome just a couple of weeks ago as well. Uh, it is busy, I have to say. Seriously busy. So it's like a 48-hour venture just trying to see all of the sites, take it all in. Uh, but it was amazing. So many loving, lovely banking metaphors in Rome, but we'll not get into that just yet. Um, so next up, we have Kirsty Grant, who is the investment director at Cedars. How's it going, Kirsty? Hi, I'm well. Thanks very much for having me. No worries at all. And I think this is, what, fourth or fifth appearance now? So we have Caroline Plum, the CEO and founder of Fluidly. How's it going? Great, thank you. Great to be back. Thanks very much. We definitely need to come up with something more interesting for fourth and fifth. I think we say this every time you're on, but like, you need a plaque or something now. So all these stories... Stories we talk about today are from the 11FS and Fintech Insider community, fintechinsidernews.com. Check it out for all the latest news and sign up to get involved in those discussions. So first up, we have a story on Finextra. And this is one that has literally just slotted itself into the show notes, uh, literally as we were talking through the introduction, which is good. This is banks will have to develop PFM tools under FCA high cost credit reforms. So everybody right now is furiously clicking on this link to, to understand what it is to talk about it. But basically, it looks like UK banks will be forced to develop alerts for customers who may be about to slip into the red, as well as a range of prompts and PMFM tools to make it easier to keep on top of finances following the review from the from the FCA. This is an interesting one, really. You know, this is bank, big banks being forced to provide services. What do we think? It's an interesting article from Finextra that actually was talking about that in 2016, firms made £2.3 billion in revenue from overdrafts. And 30% of that was from unarranged overdrafts. So those overdrafts where suddenly you're you're just spending, the bank lets you keep spending, you haven't signed a piece of paper. So all of a sudden, you're being charged a ridiculous amount. I think one thing I'm actually quite interested to see is just understand the actual transactions in particular. So it's slightly anecdotal, but I did hear a very interesting stat from uh, somebody from within one of the banks. And they were talking about this actually... This is fascinating. Yeah. It's like, Psst, I heard a rumour. Exactly. So um, supposedly, as it goes, uh, in terms of the individuals who are actually going overdrawn, 40% of them, they believe, are related to gambling. And they actually believe it's the, the trigger in terms of then actually going and spiralling to further debt so there is something really interesting there but identifying the actual specific transactions and then the individuals and then it's about obviously nudging the individuals into the right type of behavior 
there's already some so many interesting businesses out there that work in this space, the reg tech space, and uh, we've funded a number that like Plum that kind of it's like a financial butler and it warns you when you're getting to that that level. Um, I think this is a great opportunity for some of those startups to come through and, and take the space. I agree. But it also hits at the heart of the banking model in the UK. You know, this perverse freemium where actually it's a small number. And I think this article quotes that 1.5% of, of customers essentially pay up to £450 a year to subsidise everyone else's banking. So it's not like Spotify where you get a better service, you pay a bit more. It's actually there's a small population that because of either a, you know their financial circumstances or lack of self-control or whatever, uh, actually end up paying ridiculous amounts for their day-to-day banking that subsidises everyone else's banking uh, um, you know, day to day. It's probably a great opportunity for, as you say, those businesses that are already providing this sort of service to either get acquired by the banks or drive new partnerships. I mean, they're probably all very excited about it. But I think some of the existing challenger banks that are already starting to build in these features from the start, it's going to be interesting to see how the playing field is starting to get a bit leveled. You've already got, you know, Barclays copying that thing where you can turn off your, freeze your card, and now they're going to have to copy all these other features. So is there going to be the sort of feature race mm. that, people keep having to do more and more and more yeah i've talked about uber a bunch of times in this instance like literally i live in a tiny little village in the middle of nowhere and my local taxi firm that has only 20 cars now has all of the features that uber has because you know people copy features and that's fine but it's it's not quite the the ability that banks really have you know none of them are really fast followers in this guy so are they gonna you know has it taken two years for them to copy one of the features that monzo did at barclays Mm -hmm. well if Monzo keep doing things every, I think Simon Van Scalina said it takes from idea to execution two weeks. You know, if they're two weeks and two years behind every time, is that going to be good enough for most of those customers? Yeah, I think the on, on your point actually, Caroline. So it is, it is quite interesting. So we saw um, Parity recently being bought out by Harrods, and again, if you kind of look at the user case there, it was all about that kind of preemptive predictive personalized nature that they're trying to bake into the actual customer journey and you know what for them just go out and acquire the talent acquire the skills straight away makes complete sense Mm. there's got to be a lot of people who own pfm companies like rubbing their hands together right now like their valuations are going to go through the roof right but I think they were lacking a business model perhaps before. Yeah. You know, it wasn't quite clear what the business model was going to be. So they're probably breathing a sigh of relief and thinking, great, this is now the entry point to exit. But the, I guess the problem is that it's not just that intelligent services layer is actually the stuff underneath the financial infrastructure that actually the ability to look at transaction by transaction to have that trigger some intelligence is actually difficult in a, in a big bank world you know a, a new modern startup bank can have that that uh, fire hose feed of transactional data come through and do interesting things with it and, and indeed um, Monzo I think a couple of weeks ago put out a blog post about supporting people to uh, self-exclude from gambling expenses so actually by looking at the mastercard visa metadata that comes through by finding the merchant category code that says gambling you can actually create a a small rule set a microservice that then looks for authorizations that come through under that code and say actually no for the for this person for this period of time they don't want to be allowed to to gamble themselves which is a, a great use case but needs some extensive infrastructure beneath the waterline in order to be able to provide those kind of services. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be like the evolution of software generally, right, from the system of record to systems of results or systems of intelligence. So how do you get that data in a structure that you can manipulate and do something with? 
isn't it sad though when the regulator has to mandate it? Yeah, it's it like sad. Regulators trying to mandate a good customer experience yeah. and good behaviour from the organisations. That's not a that's not a great place to be. But uh, that altruistic behaviour just doesn't come you know, through the first time round with the majority of the actual incumbent banks. And I think that's the interesting thing in terms of Monzo. The, the actual the real shame with it is that if you think about the addressable market, you know, is that going to be a Monzo customer, and I, I don't want to kind of paint a broad brush here, or, or is it going to be a main high street customer? So it's, you know, we're really crying out for this functionality to get into the hands of those customers, really, into the right hands, I should say. Do you think it will lead, though, to the banks monetizing some of the other services that we're currently sort of assuming are free? Probably. There's, it's like <laughs> whack-a-mole on this one, isn't it? I'm sure the FCO moved on to the next thing, aren't they? But um, And from one thing the regulators did to a whole different kettle of regulation here. So happy gdpr day last week that was uh i didn't it didn't notice did, did you, you not know uh, something was going on well no not at all the, someone sent an email didn't they yeah. like one person well and it was really interesting like and this is a story on the verge and that said nobody's ready for gdpr because I saw a couple of kind of interesting jokes about this one. I think it was like 10,000 consulting hours and it turns out it's just somebody sending an email to opt in and that was it. Like how much consultancy did the big consultancy sell off the back of that? I find it amazing. But it turns out that nobody was particularly prepared for this. So two years notice period to get ready and most left it to the last minute. Like seemingly some after it as well. I think there was, uh, I caught at least 10 emails to me who were like, it went, can you please opt in else you'll Never hear from us again. Uh, but in a survey of over a thousand companies conducted by Ponymon, definitely going to autocorrect that to Pokemon when I type it. Institute in April, half of the companies said that they won't be compliant by the deadline. Um, this turns out to be no such of a surprise when a, a year ago, 61% hadn't even begun to get ready. How many thousands of emails did you guys get then? It's the ultimate unsubscribe exercise. I've not opted back into any of them. Yeah, I'm waiting to see what happens. Because like, I, I literally haven't, I haven't replied to anything. Like I'm waiting for that serenity into my Gmail account now where no emails come in, you know. But are you going to get that? Because there's quite a lot of legitimate use quite often. So I think lots of people sent all these emails thinking, I'm going to have to get everyone to opt back in again. But actually, a lot of people will have had a legitimate use to continue that relationship. Um, but I kind of love this story. It's like a collective essay crisis, isn't it? Everyone just awaited the last minute and went, oh, go on, everyone else deal with it. And then just sort of left it to the last minute or just ignored it. It was a frenzy. I, it was absolutely mental in terms of going into my email box. And I think the thing is you, you kind of build up a barrier against it. And, you know, I just look at it a fantastic way to just basically clear out all of my spam emails. Uh, and that's a shame, you know, because I'm sure that there'll be some things that I'll be missing out on. Because, you know, I just kind of gone, you know, actually just ignore it, just delete it, just move on. Uh, there was one actually statistic that I did find quite interesting. So to put this into perspective, the popularity of GDPR, it was more popular on Google than Beyonce last week. Wow. So the Beyonce, yeah, kind of. She needs the, to step her game up, really, doesn't she? She really she? does. She needs to bring something out, a new album, new tour. New something. privacy policy. Yeah, maybe that's Hold it. Hold on, isn't the new Beyonce album called GDPR? <laughs> <laughs> Smart move. Um, if you guys are still confused by GDPR, uh, we have just the podcast for you that came out last Friday. So this is episode 220 and aiming to unpick the confusion and explain what GDPR actually is. Uh, this was the debut of Ryan Garner taking the helm and a bit of a light hearted romps through what it is and how it's going to work 
checked out. If you didn't have enough GDPR fun, then The Telegraph was already going through some of the major fails on this one. Have you uh, guys checked this out? There's a long list of reasonably major fuck-ups of one description or another. That uh, My favorite one was, was it Vitell? who basically sent an email to everybody saying how much they cared about their privacy, but accidentally sending it to everybody, not BCCing everybody. <laughs> so managed to give away the entirety of their mailing list to everybody who was on their mailing list, which is quite an interesting one. I have to say I've, I've caught a couple of smaller like hotel chains accidentally doing that, but to such a large degree on this one, it's impressive. But um, you guys spotted any funny ones in your mailbox? I saw that the Labour Party one apparently was um, came out. It was Jeremy Corbyn's birthday on the weekend after, and it was up back in and on your room Jeremy's birthday it's a cute take it's incentive depending on which way you fall on that one I guess isn't it so uh, but um, alright let's move away from GDPR I think that's probably enough regulation for one episode um, so next up we have a story in TechCrunch this is PayPal and Google team up so PayPal starts a deeper integration with Google users can now pay for various different bits and bobs from Gmail YouTube and all sorts of other gubbins Hmm, it's an interesting one. More payments integration stuff? What do you guys think? Yeah, I think every man and woman and their dog wants to get involved in terms of the whole kind of mobile wallet racket. And it is quite fascinating, I have to say, uh, especially kind of coming off the back of the news from a couple of weeks ago about Microsoft and the move that they're making. Uh, so, yeah, I think um, in terms of the utopian world, we're aiming for. So whereby interactions with a bank happen you know, in the same way you might interact with the rest of your life. So, And typically, you, as you mentioned beforehand, you know, in terms of Uber or Google, you know, it's very much at the experiential level. So I think the kind of product development kind of perspective here is huge, you know, the opportunity for what they're trying to do. And PayPal, you know, they are the big veteran in the marketplace. So it's just fascinating to see, less so in terms of that, but perhaps more so if you kind of take a step back in terms of what they've done recently with iZettle and actually what does that mean so you're talking about the biggest payments provider the biggest point of sale device provider and Google and bringing all of that together in terms of taking on the market so that's quite a fascinating thing PayPal went away for a little while you know like they were like the darlings of kind of integration and everything that they did and they sort of went away for a bit but I, I think I've used them more in the last couple of months than I have for years really I'm not sure if they've really started to step up their presence at uh, sort of you know digital point of sales but yeah I you know I've, I've kind of keep keep jumping on them I'm not sure necessarily whether they're going to be the only ones that integrate with sort of Google though because I guess with what Google are doing really really well in terms of aggregation of data in various different guises like they are the place that I shop for flights you know like if if they could integrate various different payment mechanics into that and work as a you know a true aggregator setup that would be super super fun from my perspective well I guess you know uh, as we've spoken about before payments are moving away from the bank because they belong in the context of whatever it is that you pay for you know you uh, are at a restaurant you're paying there you're online you're paying there you've got your subscriptions and everything but I guess one of the things that PayPal has a question about is are they still going to be pulling this from banks are they still using the card networks because we've got psd2 we've got open banking coming along we've got the ability to pay directly from one bank to another and so they've been a really interesting beneficiary of people getting bored of typing in very long pan 
uh, card numbers and expiry dates and CVV codes into websites and just thinking, I just click the pay by PayPal button. Or the other week, I clicked the pay by Amazon button, which was like, wow, okay. And that so you, works really well, really good. It? So you've got these these intermediaries that then act as a proxy because I don't want to type in 17 digits and look for my card and that kind of thing. But it's going to be interesting to see where that goes if and when the card networks uh, start to uh, start to get threatened by you know by other things by non-card payment networks, I think it's interesting to see it in the so integrated in the journey that, that the user's just having. You're sort of just there, and it's it's all happening at the point of your actual natural interaction. And I think we'll see that trend just more and more. I think I saw something that Sage and Microsoft Outlook were letting you send invoices mm-hmm. um, directly from your inbox. So I think there's that constant integration between payment and or, or wanting requesting payment exactly. and point of interaction is that going to fragment your money into lots of little pools in lots of places or are they all going to be pulling from your bank in some way like you know how, how does this play out I yeah think. that's interesting that is an interesting point because i i have probably not logged in to my paypal account for like four years do you know yeah. what i mean like so what material benefit like the the ability to like cross up sell stuff is not there from my perspective it's literally a button on a page because i'm lazy because it knows your credit card yeah i know i should be more worried i guess okay well from one payment provider to another this is a story over on cnbc and this is square's accidental banking so this is square stumbles into the banking business which is an interesting one which i'm sure jack dorsey is quite excited about so this is square customers are treating their payment companies cash app more like a bank account than the company intended says jack dorsey uh while it wasn't their goal he plans to lean into the trend i bet he bloody does because (laughs) that smells like opportunity really doesn't it did he really stumble into it though they applied for a banking license right a while ago so they've got their banking license they clearly didn't really stumble into it um it's probably good marketing to pretend that they did but you know it's great great idea and again you're seeing i think the same movement to point of sale you know sort of the ability to start delivering financial services whether that's lending or banking at the point of interaction and clearly they're really brilliantly placed for that and and no wonder that their focus in this space now is probably why PayPal bought iZettle you know the same sort of mechanics I think lending is pretty mature and it's only really the excitement in it is only really in these sort of interesting new emerging areas but it's another one of those pools of cash you know using the cash app you send it back and forth between your friends and you know you get your money from it and when that that ecosystem of players gets to a certain size it's where you keep the majority of your money so it's going to be interesting to see how these different pools fight each other and how different ecosystems of my friends and my friends from uni and my friends from work and my you know how this how this all plays out what was incredible here though was he's also saying that uh, for a lot of people for a lot of the users it's actually their only bank account and i mean i just can't imagine anyone being unbanked yet you know well and the fact that they had seven million active customers in december like that's crazy right you know they were saying that this is growing faster than venmo now which you just wouldn't have thought about a year ago would you so um again i I thought square had sort of gone off the boil a little bit um you know with uh jack dorsey sort of spending a little bit more time trying to fix twitter uh but now that uh, clearly he can straddle both of those things and do it well yeah i, I think the interesting thing there is the, that kind of realization that we don't actually need the utility of banking but increasingly you know we don't need you know, a bank to provide that so if you look in terms of the customers that they're actually bringing in it is the underbanked it is the 
I think the terminology is debanked, not T-banked or anything like that. That's fucking bad. Um, <laughs> debanked. That means that somebody debanked? took a bank from you. No. So this is um, so this is customers that, and it's apparently it's a, a growing group, but the hyperconnected and they're abandoning traditional banking relationships, and it does support you know the thesis in terms of what Square is saying here. So you know what and what you mentioned beforehand. So you know traditional customers that might have used. Uh, one of the major banks previously then actually going you know actually I can do everything I need within here and you know lo and behold they've stumbled across this use case which is incredible yeah but then I, I agree to your point um, around did they stumble on it because Venmo Swish Tiki Vips you know you can look across the globe and one of those peer-to-peer payment networks has been launched by a bank or by another company and they'll grow like wildfire in, in a variety of territories it almost seems to be like like the uh, the de facto fintech that a bank should start in a new area should be a peer to peer payment app because it just seems to work in in areas where those things aren't aren't already. They all right now, if you look at the challenger banks, they've all got I guess kind of different go to market strategies, and they're all slicing and dicing their approach in a slightly different take and way. And if you look at where they actually start and then when the, where they actually end, you know, all, everybody's going towards the same goal here. So, you know, obviously you look at TransferWise right now and the announcements that obviously they're going to be going into, uh, I think it's cross-border, you know, kind of, a, again, a utopian bank account for everybody. Uh, you've still got the likes of the Monzos and the Starlings, but then you've also got Revolut. And, like, you know, if you look at Revolut, was it is it... They're over a million customers, a million and a half, two million customers. Jesus. Uh, but then again, you, you look at the propositions that they're actually pushing out to the market. The only one kind of thing to look at, and maybe it's a side, but it's um, so Jack's obviously and got huge admiration for him and for Square and what they're actually doing over there. Uh, but the obsession around cryptocurrencies and, you know, obviously distributed ledger and that kind of side of things. I'd be intrigued to see what the adoption rates are like for that as they are for Revolut and, you know, is that it might be an edge case, I don't know, uh, but it might be a great pool in terms of bringing in those early adopters. Agree. Right, enough of this nonsense, time for a quick break. Let's get another drink. And after that, welcome back. Uh, as a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com. Connect to us on Twitter at 11FS team or drop us an email at hello at 11FS.com. Now on with the show. So from one payment provider story to another. This is Can Aiden Do What I'd Settle Didn't? which after a pint and a half is pretty difficult to say, I'm not going to lie. Um, so this is Finextra that we had Aiden confirms plans for an IPO. So I guess with everything that iZettle not settling, as we sort of reported, I think, six weeks ago, and then five weeks ago, they did, and they sold. Embarrassing. Um, that Aiden are now looking at pretty firm plans at an IPO. What do we think about this? What an awesome business. Yeah, they're doing it right, I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, incredible business and clearly doing brilliantly. And brilliantly overtaken sort of PayPal's mm-hmm. primary method on eBay. Um, just so much going on. I think it's fantastic. So they're chasing a $9 billion valuation. Well done, you guys. Yeah, I, I think the really striking thing here is just how profitable it is. Uh, so if you actually go into the accounts, you'll see they've got an EBITDA of 99 million euros. Or a margin of 45.5%, which is incredible. So that's a really attractive business, any way you actually look at it. So the real question is, 
who could they actually go after or who could go after their market with a really disruptive model so you know i guess if you're sort of processing the payments for spotify uber and facebook that's not a bad list of people to be sort of working with from a volume perspective right it's not with that kind of margin because you would think if you're going to take those big players then they'd be pushing you pretty aggressively in terms of you know who's taking their money and what they're paying per payment but then maybe their tech is just so much better than paypal or will pay because they're built so much later and so they're probably sitting on a platform that's just fundamentally better experience for their customers perhaps i I guess though on that basis it's like is it the newest platform that wins because essentially they've got a nine billion valuation on the thing that they're doing now so i I guess you know lateral into banking here they've got to keep spending the money like they're rejuvenating that platform year in year out to you know be the be the best and the brightest essentially right it's funny i mean when you when they came up on the news i just didn't recognize the name I was like, Adyen? Adyen? How do you say? No, no. It's just not someone I recognise, which probably shows my ignorance or that they're just not a consumer brand. Yeah, but I guess they're back office, aren't they? You know, they are. I I think the the fascinating thing that there's a lot of players, though, who manage to, they haven't got that kind of fintech magic dust over them. And Adyen is definitely one of them that's just in the background doing shit. Yeah, and it's incredible in terms of the actual reach of them. You're not the only one. I think there's there's a number of other people that are out there. I think the fascinating thing is just looking at, you know, the stats around, you know, I mean, this potentially being the biggest European IPO that we've actually seen. And one of the first ever VC-backed fintechs to actually go through. So, yeah, it's fantastic, you know, uh, given a time where there is a lot of eyeballs in terms of the likes of the funding circles and others who are going to be going through potentially the end of this year as well. That is a huge valuation to go public with. That's, I can't believe they've survived private for so long. And that must be one of the, I mean, that must be a huge company for Euronext in particular. Yeah, I agree. Uh, fingers crossed they get to it. But um, if somebody swoops in and buys them between now and then, we'll definitely keep you, uh, keep you abreast of that and let you know. Can't many that many buyers wanting to write that kind of check. You never know. It's um, one people that we probably know would have enough money to go and make this one happen is the next story. So thank you very much for that one. Uh, and financial raises even more billions. Like at this point, they have all the billions, quite frankly, don't they? So this is a story from Reuters. This is China's Ant Financial raises 10 billion at a valuation of 100 150 billion damn that's a lot of money yeah they thought they were doing well yeah. until like someone comes with an order of magnitude ipo yeah i'd like jack moore as a friend to be honest i just it's <laughs> obscene isn't it like these numbers don't mean anything anymore so um ant's first fundraising target global money values the firm at 150 billion the people said compared with about 60 billion after its previous fundraising in april 2016 so in two years, they've added 90 billion. Yeah, it's done all right. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, I, I thought we were doing quite well. I feel like we all need to really reassess our lives and step our game up right now. But can anything really stop what these guys are doing in terms of Amp Financial? With that amount of money, they can pretty much go anywhere and do anything, can't they? Yeah, they're on, they're on a direct collision course in terms of Amazon. And that's going to be the most fascinating thing in terms of the East meets the West and that battleground that they're carving up right now. It's and like who's Rocky IV all over again. Oh, no, no, no. That's, that was Russia, wasn't it? That, that was, was Russia, uh, yeah. Um, Rocky Seven. we're going to get there eventually. That would make for a fan- fantastic movie, I have to say. 
No, I think um, <laughs> the fintech edition. Yeah, yeah like giants going. I don't think it's a Hollywood bestseller. I don't, I'll be honest, guys. I don't know, like the US versus China. That's got to be like a constant sort of theme of. I think it's a fintech piece that's going to put people off. Yeah, probably that's true. I wouldn't go to the cinema to watch fintech, would you? How about you? Like valuations, like 150 billion, must be kind of really skewing the landscape pretty heavily. Absolutely, and that amount of private capital available. I think that's the thing that's skewing it. Really, I mean, we're seeing so few IPOs or such late IPOs in general because there is just so much private capital available for these companies. But it was the fact that uh, Alibaba, I was just looking it up, uh, uh, IPO'd for $168 billion in 2014 and spun this off. This wasn't the main thing. This was, well, while we're at it, let's spin off this thing. And then a few years later, oh, that's worth $150 billion. They just need to spin something off from Ant Financial now and just keep that chain going. Keep it going. $160-odd billion each time they do it. Yeah, that's, um, sounds good to me. Pretty good spin off. It's it? pretty impressive. I mean, when someone lists at that kind of valuation, your, your concern is how, where do they go from there? Surely the public markets are kind of, they've tapped out. They can't really get any more growth out of it. But I think these guys are proving there's still, there's still money to be had. You look in terms of, so the interesting thing in terms of the article, one of the points they're making there is that you compare it to uh, Facebook, which was just six years ago, so that was $104 billion. And as Jason was saying there, Alibaba, $168 billion back in 2014. It's just incredible, you know, those kind of valuations. Like, what, what on earth do you actually do with all of that you know, behind you, all of that might? And I, and I guess with that, you know, that collision coming with sort of the Amazons and the Googles of the world, I kind of feel like there's no chance that Amazon's going to really succeed in the way that Alibaba could could succeed in. Like I hear people, you know, talking about even on day to day basis that they're looking at Alibaba to buy glasses and whatnot to be shipped to the UK. So, you know, is America going to really allow Alibaba to go in? Definitely, Donald Trump's not going to allow Alibaba to go no. in. Is he? I think that. So, I, one of the things I think is quite fascinating when you actually look at it is. Just the looser regulations that you tend to see in terms of China right now against the West and specifically in terms of Europe. And then it's kind of a question of what impact is that going to have from their ability to actually push the boundaries in terms of what's actually possible? How far can they go? Yeah, again, it's completely different over here. And I mean, I know we we're talking about GDPR right, before, but it, it's quite a fascinating thing that actually GDPR, you know, it will have a knock and effect to, you know, the big you know, American blue chips, you know, it'll, it'll have a big impact in terms of Google, Apple and Amazon and Facebook, who all depend in terms of the, the European citizens. So again, you then look in terms of Alibaba and Ant Financial, who are just, you know, they're just, they're up in their skills, they're kind of cutting their teeth in terms of that market. And, and what will they do? And then what will they bring over here? Or will they just contain it in terms of the East? It just doesn't feel that way. You know, they, there is a huge competitive advantage from an R&D perspective, at least, in terms of that ecosystem that they've got there. Yeah. Well, they've got the ability, in one sense, to loosen regulation with government participation, but at the same time to wholesale block Google and Facebook from existing in the country. You know, like it's a um, I think this is why uh, because of like the Western world's view on competition is actually why it's going to be easier for Alibaba to go to the US than it is for Amazon to go to China because the government will just stop it happening, which is just amazing, really. But then the thing is, you know, how much of this is about money and how much of it is about network effects? Because in order to, to displace Amazon, you've actually got to come up with something that, that will drag you, drag you there. Amazon's got a lot of money 
Ant Financial, Alibaba's got a lot of money. So I, don't, I think it becomes less about money and more about that level of service. And if I'm already shopping with Amazon, what's that 5x, 10x experience that drags me over to Alibaba? You know, I, don't, I think it's, it strikes me more like a game of risk where it's not just that the one biggest retailer in the world takes over all online shopping, but that actually there are capabilities, there's the ability to have different regions that can have, you know, uh, that, that have done the land grab. Because really, uh, Alibaba are going to deliver something, you know, 10 times better, maybe vertical integration and controlling the suppliers. But but there's something there that I think I'm not sure it's as straight as well. They've got a ton of more money, so they're just going to uh, come over and take over the US. And maybe that's not the battleground. It might not be East versus West. It's sort of what's happening in the emerging markets. And we, well, Amazon and India, you know, they said they're going to burn their bridges effectively and commit huge amounts of money to that market. You know, I'm sure Alibaba will be there. Brazil, you know, I think that's where the yeah, next yeah. frontier is going to be. I'm not sure it's going to be the kind of, yeah, I think it's risk because the, the, the um, initial bases are established and now go attack other areas. It's interesting as well, like in a, a world of globalization where actually everything that I'm probably buying from Amazon shipping from the from China anyway, yeah. like actually what, we're talking about the storefront here, aren't we? To your point, Jason, this is a this is an exercise in branding and, and user experience, ease of use in terms of where I'm at. Or if just laziness of where I've got an account and what I open but every dude, day. Dude, you've got Amazon Prime. Amazon rise every day. You press the button. Are you really going to be be taken over to Alibaba? I don't know. If they got really nice cardboard boxes like Amazon do, I'm probably up for that. I was going to say just one kind of thing on this. So, and it is a it's a side point actually. I remember actually seeing an article. I think it must have come out about four months ago. And they're actually talking about uh, the East versus the West in terms of AI and machine learning. But there is a huge amount of you know, focus right now in terms of Alibaba. Uh, Tencent, Badu, in terms of actually bringing over all of the the machine learning experts into China to give them that competitive edge. I mean, what how that pans out and what that gives them in terms of over the next, say, 10, 15, 20 years will be fascinating because there is definitely a change in tide in that talent shift going across the East. Agree. Moving on. So from raising money to saving money. This is a story on roostermoney.com. And pretty obviously, it's about rooster money. So this is the Pocket Money Index. Uh, Rooster Money is a pocket money and chore tracking app, which I'll definitely be uh, deploying upon my children now that I know this one exists. Uh, These guys specialize in pocket money analytics and financial education for parents, which is kind of interesting. But it shows that it's been that kids have been saving an impressive 24.9% of their pocket money so far this year and that's comparing with adults and households only managing to save 5.3 percent of their income like i go back to like as a child it was easy right um you know my my six-year-old doesn't have a great deal to spend his money on really other than to be honest with you, i buy the games so he doesn't really have any money to spend <laughs> anything on but um what do you think about this though is this is this children getting a good exercise in actually how to save money effectively or is it just uh sweets don't cost as much as they should do i'm kind of thinking that maybe will carmichael the ceo is he just a better parent than i am or does he not have children like because my kids you know they just spend it on tat you yes. know it's like world cup stickers and those little animal shaped rubbers yes i don't think engaging with money at a young age is good for them yeah. i mean they just it's complete they just buy waste that, stupid things. i completely agree yeah you know like, i'm kind of like is this really real we're like, having this conversation like literally me and sarah are having this conversation now should we give 
our six-year-old and our four-year-old pocket money. No, no, and I'm like, if we give them pocket money, they're going to... Yeah, those stupid egg things. Yeah. Like, and it just, just goes to nothing. Fill but, your but house with plastic. <laughs> it's just a waste of time. Like, but okay, I'm just a bad parent. Kids' tat is not yeah. the same as adult tat. But hold on, expensive cars, handbags, <laughs> laptops, shoes. You know, this is just tat in a different way. People have a different, just different behaviour. We're not here to judge people, Jason. <laughs> We're just saying our kids are not responsible, that's all. But I think it is a... It's a really interesting question about teaching kids about money when there isn't physical money to use. You know, when they don't see mum and dad actually like taking money out of a pay packet and spending it, but just taking out oh the magical card, daddy. You give it to the money to the man, and he gives me toys. Can I have a magical card too? You know, there's just something about how do you grasp something that's so abstract when actually it's not connected to something tangible anymore it's it's fine is this just a digital piggy bank i think it pretty much is yeah i think that's what it is but um i think that i like the idea of collecting to chores though because that is that sense that you're doing something useful for the household in return for your probably gamify it a little bit as well for the kids so they're kind of yeah but i again you know i just that just hasn't worked for me in the past i've got sticker charts star charts just tat you just you're just not gamifying it well enough. You just need I to need to step your game just up. really like demoralising for me. This whole piece, you know. So, so how, how much pocket money do you give your kids though? Because it says here, so six six pound fifteen is the average weekly pocket yeah, again, money. Again, I'm just for feeling four bad. Four year olds. No way. A pound, one pound to my eight year old a week. If she tidies her room and clears the table and is polite all week. Well, that, see, that's the debate with, with my wife, Sarah. <laughs> they have to do something for yeah, the money. Yeah, they don't yeah. just get the money. Yeah. This is not a salary they get for, like, just being my kid. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, they have to just Can do something. <laughs> yeah, like, do you have, like, a performance bonus as yeah, well? You've, they, uh... they don't get, like, pension rights and everything that kind of goes with it and holiday. You know, like, they, they have to do stuff for that money. <laughs> I think the, the best mechanic I've seen around pocket money, because you, you've had Go Henry and Osper and all kinds of people try and make this work no one's really done it no one's really got massive scale off the back of a pocket money play which is interesting but but there's what the one mechanic i've seen that i really like is uh, is an artificial interest rate so i can't remember who the player was but they actually allowed you to have for the parent to set an artificial interest rate for their kids so Oh, it was rooster money. There you go then. No, but I love that mechanic because it was the idea that um, that actually in low interest rate environment, you're going to get 10 bips, you know, point something of a percent. The fact that you could say, great, I'm going to give you 5% a month on your uh, savings at least actually gets people into thinking, oh, if I don't spend this, I get more and more and more. And you could set the interest rate pretty high in order just to get that investing and savings thing. You're looking at me like I'm... No, no I so, think that's fantastic. Like, I think that's great. It's never going to work, really, is it? Like, I mean, if it was like an animal rubber, then, I'm, then, then they're in, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've played this game with Josh, my six-year-old, a lot. Like, do you want three sweets now or, like, six sweets <laughs> yeah. at 6 p.m.? And it's noon. He'll take the three sweets every time. No self-control, no. like... But anyway, we can talk about this one maybe a lot. Maybe just our parenting. Yeah, maybe. That's what it... Like, you're just a, you're just a better parent, Jason. Um, but anyway, Laura spoke to Rooster Money CEO, Will Carmichael, to find out a little bit more about this one. So let's hear what it was, Laura. So I'm here with Will Carmichael, CEO of Rooster Money. Welcome to Fintech Insider. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for coming. So first of all, could you just give us a bit of an intro to Rooster Money for any of our audience that's unsure of who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So Rooster Money launched in January 2016, and we're a pocket money platform that's really designed to help parents take their kids from the first steps in understanding the value of money. So we literally start age three or four through to the point when they're ready to get their own bank account. Um, So we have kids up to the age of 14 
um, on the app. Um, and it is an app. Currently, we have well over 300,000 users, um, mainly across the UK, um, US and, and also Australia. Great, thank you. So today we're talking about the Pocket Money Index, the results of which you've just published. Um, could you tell us a bit about that and how you kind of um, amalgamated all the data? Yeah, so the Pocket Money Index or the PMI really is a fun snapshot on pocket money habits of families. But we did it for two reasons. On a practical level, we had a lot of parents going, you know, how much pocket money should I give? What, what should I get kids to put it towards? You know, how do I get grandparents involved? So the idea from that point of view is it's a really practical way of just showing them what other families are doing. And the other reason that we did it really was to start provoking discussion about why you can use pocket money as this amazing vehicle to start engaging kids with the value of money. Um, so the pocket money index is taken from our users, it's a sample of 10,000 in, in each region. And the idea is to re- give people a really good idea of, of how pocket money is used um, across the platform. Great. And there were some pretty interesting results. So 92% gave pocket money weekly. It was that international result as well. Yeah, well, it's that give or take a few percent. That's, that's pretty standard. I think the US is slightly less um, than, than the UK. And, you know, it, the other things you can see then, yeah, the difference between weekly and monthly. Um, some will give it for chores, some won't. It depends on your kind of philosophy the kind of top five things that kids are saving towards you know lego always tops the charts um which is great to see and you know it's also aspirational so phones uh, holiday money and um, those kind of bigger ticket items is what what kids save towards oh, great. Um, so there's an impressive stat here that they are saving at 25 percent of their pocket money overall which obviously shows that kids are saving which in and of itself is quite a good thing right no it's great and it's all about building those habits and and what you find is kids like you know setting a goal and saving towards it is a lot easier than just saving so either they're saving towards those those bigger items or they're saving for their university fund you know these can be really aspirational and and that's the really kind of great thing that that you see once kids get engaged they really do start doing that we might incentivize it a little too because parents can set their own interest rate so like the average paid on rooster money is nine percent um so if you're putting some aside specifically for saving then parents can incentivize it that way too which is you know again how how you can kind of layer on those habits early on so how does that work they get the interest is for the children. Yeah, so a parent can say, yeah, I'm going to set you this interest rate. And then obviously you can get into the, talking about the concepts of compound interest and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I see. So it rewards them for, for exactly. saving their pocket money. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, and so we were talking just before we started recording um, about how uh, sort of your money habits are set from the age of seven or thereabouts. So obviously if you start them young on the right track and people are saving, that is obviously looking good for the future. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that research is really important to show, you know, as soon as your kids, you're out in the shop and they start noticing that you're you're paying for things, they're starting to pick things up and say, oh, I really want that. That's that's an opportunity for you to have a conversation. So um, I think that research, you know, points towards by the age of seven, we understand opportunity costs, what the value of something is that you need to, to save towards something. It's not instant gratification. So, you know, start early and, and get them going on that. Great. And so... This uh, pocket money index is quarterly, did you say? Yeah, so we just started doing it quarterly. We'd previously done it annually. And, and the idea is to sort of dr- draw out the kind of seasonal 
kind of impact as well so um as well as seeing it you know as our platform grows and um, we've got kind of about 51 currencies being used in the app so that gives us plenty of scope for the pmi great are you seeing a lot of quarter on quarter differences or is this the first time you've gone quarterly we have done certain cuts quarterly so um you see certain things change so obviously over christmas you, you're getting extra sort of money for from grandparents and family that you might not get in other parts of the year birthdays obviously still continue and and after christmas you might see a bit more saving than pre-christmas <laughs> that makes sense okay so finally what comes next for rooster money what's next on your horizon it's really exciting for us we, we've grown really really quickly over the last kind of year as i said our kind of main markets uh, us uk we're looking at a couple of other markets too now um so it's really about growth we we recently um teamed up with just giving so that kids can now donate through the app um and we've seen a great uptake on that and we're, we're looking at a number of other partnerships um around that really just to any routes to provoke positive conversations about money fantastic sounds great so where can people find out more so you can find us in the app store or on android in in the play store um visit roostermoney.com um and we're on twitter as roostermoneyhq brilliant thank you so much for joining us on fintech insider pleasure thanks for having me Continuing the theme of starting financial education early, we go to millennials, the other buzzword that we like to throw out there a a lot. So millennials are much better at saving than maybe they get credit for, which is news to me as one of them. This is on uh, Fintech News. A Bank of America study shows that millennials are doing a good job at stashing away money. So apparently one in six has £100,000 in savings. Yeah, I'd like to look at that quota size in there. And nearly half have 15K. So the 15K I could believe, but one in six millennials have £100,000 in savings. A Bank of America study of their private wealth accounts or something. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. So um, so three quarters have a monthly budget, which sort of makes sense. I guess everybody has. Uh, millennials don't get themselves enough, give them themselves enough credit. No pun intended there. Well done, Laura. That was rather entertaining. So we're seeing... So hold on. They looked at 1,500 people broken down to older millennials and younger millennials so basically people in their 30s and people in their 20s the statistics included any money that they'd got in their essentially ices their roth accounts and their pensions checking savings accounts and other invest, investments and retirement accounts so okay like this is you know someone in their late 30s that has been putting money away into a pension you know you've got to hope that they're they're getting there it sounds like quite a specific data set I mean, I have to say, you know, excuse my ignorance around all of this, but the press definitely had me believe in that millennials were struggling with debt and unable to save in terms of for a deposit for a mortgage because they spend it all on surely smashed you are, avocado. You are one, Ryan, surely. You're, you, well, you look very young and sprightly. You're in that category. You're too right? kind. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I just, I think the story, it is a fascinating one. Um, I think it's quite unfortunate that in terms of like, if this is actually true, that the you know the healthy financial behavior you know that's attributable in terms of what they're actually showing here isn't actually then replicated across to you know their credit worthiness at times and i think that's that's the real story here is just like how are we actually trying to utilize these you know the the, this data set in terms of savings or this data that actually sits within uh, millennials bank accounts to then actually try and bring them into uh, the banking system because you know right now in terms of getting onto the actual ladder 
with one of the credit bureaus, it's a dangerous step. You know, it's typically taking out very expensive credit to begin with. And you know, I don't think that's the right way to address it. But you know, if we were looking at this or other data sources uh, in terms of trying to help give them the ladder up, then fantastic. Mm, I, I call bullshit on this, unfortunately. I think the one in six is not true. Whether it's true or not, the... No, it's not. It's not true. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. It's not true. Well, the encouraging untrue facts uh, say, you know, they're doing this good job of stashing it away. But I don't know if that's that encouraging. You've got 100K in savings. They're saying one in six have 100K in savings and half have 15K. And yet less than 50% of millennials are in, have any sort of investments. It's all in cash. Like having a, having a bunch of cash sitting around is not going to do much for them in their future makes you look like a total baller but i agree it's definitely not a um not a, not a good US investment you in single dollars exactly yeah and that looks that's good but i think to your to your, to your point this is a an exercise in uh probably elongating what the word savings actually means. Well, in grabbing headlines and podcast space of which we've just given them probably about we you suckered us into it guys bank of america not for the first time Anyway, and finally, this is a story that we have on AMP Project, which I have never heard of before. Anybody heard of that before? Right. Subdivision of Sky News, apparently. La-di-da. So this is that London busker's first in world to be paid with contactless cards. So street musicians across the capital to accept payments via contactless cards, wearable technology, chip and pin and traditional cash. I've been seeing this for quite some time now, haven't you? Yeah, but this is a project with the Mayor of London who's partnered with a small technology company called iZettle, I think. (laughs) Has anybody heard of them? Mm, I think we mentioned them about 20 minutes ago. (laughs) So So it's interesting that the Mayor of London's actually stepped in. So I wonder if there's some element of... So performers will be... uh, Damn, it's another headline-grabbing story. What a like great the PR one. piece from yes. Well done, those guys. Like, they give away, what, 50 free machines, and suddenly we're talking about them again. And the Mayor of London as well. And this week's episode is sponsored by iZettle. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But definitely a fun one to really end this on. So I really, really like this. I know it's sort of slightly diversive in the uh, in the office, but this is the Revolut team teaming up with Zlatan Ibrahimovic to actually uh, promote the World Cup and Visa. Um, if you haven't seen this go and check it out it's hilarious i have to say um and on that note that wraps up this week's new show uh thank you very much to all of our guests where can people find out a little bit more about you ryan uh you can find me on twitter that's uh ryan underscore ep or you can find me on linkedin so ryan edwards pritchard uh kirsty where can we find out more about you uh you can find me on linkedin kirsty grant uh you could find me on twitter but i haven't tweeted in about five years so you might find it a bit dull <laughs> Carolyn, where can people find out more about you? Uh, at Fluidly or at C Plum. Very good. Jay. At Jason Davis. As always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us. Uh, you can find us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on iTunes. We do love reading, reading those reviews. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.